0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will cover Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. The title of this little section could be Slaves to Righteousness. Christians are slaves to righteousness. That's the theme that Paul's going to be focusing on in this section of Scripture. In the first 14 verses of this chapter, Paul created an analogy between death and life. Speaking of death and life. Christians are dead to sin, but they're alive to God. And if you're dead to sin, how can you still live in it? He was trying to contradict his objectors who were constantly saying, Paul, you speak speaking grace so much, that means we can just go out and sin and sin and sin. And all the grace you're talking about can cover that sin. And now we have a license to sin. We can sin that grace may abound. He's saying, no, you're dead to sin, and therefore you're baptized in water, because that's a symbol, a symbol of dying. And you're dead to sin, and of course you're raised again to new life in Christ. That's the context of Romans 6, first part of the chapter. Now we take it, we, and remember the overall context is justification was talked about in chapters 3 through 5, and then 6, 7, and 8. Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 is talking about sanctification. So that's the overall context In the immediate context. Now we start in verse 15. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Well, Paul is obviously asking a question, and I had to break the teaching at this point for the sake of space, and so we lose the context of what the previous verse said. So let me go back and read it. Verse 614 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And what he's basically saying is, if you want to sin, get under law. If you want freedom from sin, get under grace. So he ends up, verse 14, by saying, you're under grace. And then 15, he says, what then? Since you're under grace, he continues in verse 15. Should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Again, he's going back to these antinomians who every time Paul talks about grace, they say, see there, you got rid of the law, therefore you're allowing your Christians to go out and sin and do whatever they want, rob banks and fornicate with women and all that kind of stuff. And Paul responds to that with, absolutely not, at the end of verse 15. In the next couple of verses, next several verses, 16 through 19, Paul is going to say, look, yes, you're free from the law, like I've been saying, but you're not free from righteousness. You're free from the law, but you're a slave to righteousness. Of course, he uses that term slave in a metaphorical sense because we're really not slaves. We're free in Christ. Another way to put it is, yes, you're free from the law of Moses, but you're not free from the law of Christ, or you're free from the law of conscience, which every Gentile is under. But you're not free from the law of Christ. Paul asks the same question that he asked in verse 15 and verse 1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Or as other versions have it, so that grace may abound? Just keep sinning and God's grace will cover it? And of course the answer to that is, of course not. It's absurd. In fact, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that Paul's sentiments in this verse 15 are a dictate of common sense. Of course it's common sense. God shows you grace? That's like saying, my kid gets caught cheating on a test. He comes home, I say, gee, you know you shouldn't have done that. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll let it go this time, but it better not happen again. And so the kid says, ooh, I'm free to go out and do it again. Of course not. Verse 16, Romans 6. Don't you know, Paul continues, that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey? either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Now, when Paul says we're a slave to sin, that doesn't mean occasional sin. Everybody does that. Christians do that. That does not mean we're slaves to sin. Here's Cranfield's quote about that. The slavery analogy expresses the total belongingness, total obligation, total commitment, and total accountability. I mean, When you're a slave to somebody, you want to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, the master says get up at 4, you get up at 4. You don't want to work in the hot sun on the lower 40? No, you work in the hot sun on the lower 40. And if you're a slave to sin, you do what that sin tells you to do, and you can't say no. Offering oneself to sin does this, according to Steve Ackerson. It makes one addicted. The more one sins, the less impact each sin has on one's conscience. It's just like taking drugs. Your body builds up an immunity, and you keep taking drugs... And your body keeps fighting the drugs, and then you have to take more drugs and more drugs to get your high, and then the next thing you know, you're dead. Well, sin is like that. It will kill you. It starts out small, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and pretty soon your conscience gets hardened, and you're just stuffing death into yourself when you go out and continue with your partying lifestyle, your libertine lifestyle. Similar scriptures John 8:34 Jesus responded I assure you everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin and of course that present tense commits means commits in an imperfect aspect continuing on and on and on continually everyone who continually commits sin is a slave of sin 2nd 2 Peter 2:19 2, they promised them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption this is some libertines back in 2nd Peter's Back in Peter's day, and apparently they were saying, Oh, you know, take this LSD. It'll make you free from all your inhibitions. You know, all this nonsense that people do. Oh, oh, I I believe in open marriage. I can just free to have sex with whatever I want. The people that are dumb enough to do that don't realize that they are slaves of corruption. I suppose Tiger Woods felt like he was free when he was sex addicted to all those women when he was married. He was a slave. It ruined his life. Let me read Second 2 Peter 2.19 again. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. So there you go. When sin, sin defeats you, you're a slave. When you defeat sin, you're free. Simple as that. Some of the worst sins are the porno- worst addictive sins, pornography and homosexuality, things like that. But nonetheless, the Scripture clearly says you can beat, and, and Christians have done it. It's been real hard. I read all the literature about homosexuals trying to get out of that sin and it's very very difficult and pornography too that's very difficult too i've i've, I've known people who've been trying to get out of the addiction to pornography man you don't want and how about alcoholism all those alcohol movies you see on tv there's oh my gosh the the i just saw one with Bing crosby and grace kelly forgot the name of it one of Bing crosby's fantastic acting jobs one of the best he's ever done and you think my gosh He's a slave. He's an absolute, abject, beaten-down slave. All right, so we can be a slave to sin leading to death, or we can be a slave of obedience leading to righteousness. Now, this does not teach that we become righteous by obedience. I'll just be good. I'll be good, and that'll lead me to righteousness. No. The obedience comes after we are made righteous. Here's a quote from John Gill. We don't have to change in order for God to love us. God loves us just the way we are. But he loves us too much to leave us as we are. He changes us because he loves. He changes us to make us righteous. So remember, you give your rotten, filthy self to Jesus, and then you ask him to clean yourself up, and you just respond to his initiative. And you'll watch yourself getting more and more sanctified and holy. Romans 6:17. Paul continues, But thank God that, although you used to be slaves of sin, You obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to. He's talking to Christians here who used to be slaves of sin before they were Christian, and now they got saved, and now they're obeying from the heart that pattern of teaching that they were transferred to when they became a Christian. Notice that the obedience of this Christian pattern of teaching was from the heart. As the NIV Study Bible points out, Christian obedience is not forced or legalistic. Now, that pattern of teaching that Paul refers to here, the NIV Study Bible says, may refer to a summary of moral and ethical teaching given to new converts in the early church. Now, this shows the value and importance of sound teaching in the body of Christ. Here's some scripture, 2 Timothy 1.13. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Teaching is an important gift. I used to react, even though I like teaching, of course, I used to react against its emphasis because so many pastors just get up there and teach morning or Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. They feel like it's a job. It gets dead. People get bored. Instead of spreading the teaching ministry out amongst the different brothers in the church who might have that gift, only one person dominates it and hogs it. and then. No other ministry gift ever gets used. For example, prophecy like in 1 Corinthians 14 and like example, you know, all this other stuff that could be done. Instead, the whole service revolves around a sermon and you've got to sit there and the blood circulation cuts is cut off from your lower rear extremities. And you've got to force yourself to try to listen. And finally, you give up and you your head cocks over and you're out and you're snoring. No, we need to have, but but I reacted against that. But now I realize, now I see so many people, they don't study their Bible. They don't un- understand anything about the scripture. And they say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Ooh, it'll last about two weeks. And next thing you know, they are out there snorting meth, shacked up with a girlfriend or whatever, right back into slavery to sin. So the scripture clearly says that teaching is an important thing. A pa- hold on to the pattern of sound teaching. We proclaim Jesus, warning and teaching everyone. That's what Paul says to Timothy and to the Colossians. But, however, I need to point out also, sound teaching can become dead unless it's obeyed from the heart. It's got to be in you. Obedience to Christ, sanctification has got to be internal in the heart, not external. Forced forced from your flesh, trying to maintain an external conformity to the law, there's nothing that will kill you deader than that. That's basically legalism, and it doesn't work. Sanctification has got to come from within, from a changed, from a new man, a new creature, a changed heart. Now, let's talk about a Christian who might be a slave to sin. You say, well, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Well, that's probably true, but we know, well, I just mentioned, how about pornography addiction? There's lots of Christians addicted to pornography. I saw the statistics, and they were staggering, staggering. Well, let me give you an example, a homely example from Steve Ackerson. Think about animals kept inside an electric fence. The electric fence represents the enslaving power of sin. Then the electric fence is turned off, or it gets broken or something, it quits working. The animal is free to leave. Oh, I don't have to be held in my sin anymore. I can walk out into the pasture, into the neighboring pastures, down the highway. I'm free from that darn electric fence. I'm free from sin. The animal's free to leave but he doesn't. He doesn't leave because he is so used to being enslaved, he cannot imagine freedom. So likewise, the Christian is often so used to being enslaved to sin, he doesn't know he's free. And I'll say this, I I, I hate to talk about these horrible sins that Jesus can take you free from when I haven't experienced a particular sin that self, but, but I have experienced sins, maybe not as dramatic as that, that if I think, gosh, I'm never going to beat this. But you trust in Jesus enough, and you ask the Holy Spirit to burn out that sin in you long enough, and he will do it. Too many good testimonies of Christians who have beaten sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans six eighteen. It's in the middle of a sentence again, so let me read the verse 17. You obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to, verse 18, and having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. So notice, it's either or, it's binary. You either are slave to sin, or you're enslaved to righteousness. So you get liberated from sin, so you're free from sin. And now you're enslaved to righteousness. It's one or the other. The Christian has exchanged masters, as the NIV Study Bible says. Before, we, before we were Christians, we were enslaved to sin, and now we're enslaved to the righteousness of Christ. We're enslaved to righteousness. We can't help but do anything but what righteousness tells us to. Jesus says, love your neighbor. And we say, I can't help it. I'm loving that person. He's an SOB, but I can't believe I'm loving that person. This is impossible. And Jesus said, no, it's me and you loving that that, that jerk. But you love him, don't you? And you say, yeah, well, yeah. How about, I, I got to forgive my enemy? This person screwed me. He robbed me. And Jesus said, yeah, but you're going to forgive him because I'm living in you and you're walking in me. So you forgive him. I'm going to give you the power. Are you having trouble? Well, here's some more power. Here's some more. More power from the Holy Spirit. Forgive that person. There is no middle ground, folks. As Jameson Fawcett Brown puts it, you're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. It's binary, as people like to say. Romans 6.19, Paul continues, I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to moral impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness... So now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. All right, so we have a couple of contrasts here. We've got moral impurity contrasted with sanctification. We've got lawlessness contrasted with righteousness. This is a a simple analogy here. You want to be a slave to sin? You want to be a slave to righteousness. You want to live? Be a slave to righteousness. You want to die? Be a slave to impurity and unrighteousness. Now, Paul starts out this analogy here by saying I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. What was the weakness? Well there's a couple of options here maybe. Because Paul says you're having trouble breaking free from sin, I have to use a two slave analogy. Well what's wrong with that? Because it's an imperfect analogy. Paul says it's a human analogy and what he means by that it's imperfect. Because as the NIV study Bible points out there's a problem in using the word slave to refer to Christians. A slave to righteousness is sort of an ironic sense. It's sort of not really direct and scientific and objective. Because when you're a slave to righteousness, you actually are free. You're freer than you've ever been. Because you're free from sin, which leads to death. So it's an imperfect analogy. And Paul recognizes that. All right, let me go back to my two options as to uh, what the weakness of the... Romans flesh might be that causes Paul to use this human analogy. One, you're having trouble breaking free from sins. So I'm going to use this on that two-slave analogy. That's Steve Ackerson's idea. Here's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's idea. Because you're having trouble understanding what I'm talking to you about, I'm going to use the two-slave analogy. Or it could be both, actually. But at any rate, he uses the analogy. Now, notice he says that when you offer the parts of yourselves, the members of your body, as slaves to moral impurity, it leads to greater and greater lawlessness. This shows that sin is not static. Once one starts sinning, one starts sinning more and more. Just look at American culture. Oh, it started out with gay marriage. Oh, now we're into throuples and st- stuff that, frankly, I never heard of before that people are doing now. Reminds me of a country song back in the 1970s. Don't anyone make love at home anymore? Does everyone possess the urge to cheat? Oh, that was just old-fashioned adultery. Well, now we have open marriages. Yeah, let's just, it doesn't matter whether it's women or men. Oh, let's let our kids choose their own gender and give them puberty-arresting drugs. Child abuse, basically, but oh, let's do that because we want to be free. Yeah, right. So once the culture starts going down, people start sending more and more, and it's round the bowl and down the hole, and we get flushed. Now, when Paul says, "Just as you offer the parts of yourselves," that's the members of your body. I think other translations have it. I've got the Holman Christian Study Bible here. And again, he's using that as, as a, what is that? A synecdoche? Using the part for the whole, a metaphor, if you will. Because what he's talking about is offering your, your body, your life. The parts. If you offer your arm, you offer your hand to a gun and say, "I'm gonna take this gun. I'm gonna rob a bank." Well, then I'm, I'm a slave to moral impurity. Am I not? But basically what he's talking about is not just the parts of your body. That's just a symbol for when you offer your life to follow sin, you are going to get into greater and greater lawlessness. And he going to say in the next verse, you're going to die. Now, but if we offer our, the members of our body or our life, our whole life as a slave to righteousness, what's the result? Sanctification. What is sanctification? Well, it's a synonym for holiness. Now of all the theological words there are, there are not but about ten of them or so. But this is the easiest one. It's a synonym for holiness. Well, what does holy mean? It means separate from the world and dedicated to God. Or you could say separate from the world and consecrated to God, consecrated and dedicated of the same thing. The Greek word is hageosmos. If you read a hagi- hagiography, that's a biography of a saint. Or you could just say godliness. Sanctification means godliness, being like God. And remember, sanctification is what chapters 6, 7, and 8 are about. So Remember our context here. You become a slave to righteousness in order to be sanctified. Now, there are two types of sanctification. There's definitive sanctification that is obtained at the believer's conversion. Hebrews 12:14 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Remember, holiness is a synonym for sanctification. So strive for peace with everyone and for the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So if you see the Lord and you're saved, that means you've been sanctified. You say, well, what about the thief on the cross? He didn't have any time to grow. I don't care. He was sanctified because he wouldn't be able to be that day with the Lord in paradise if he didn't have any holiness. So this verse, Hebrews 12:14, is a key verse for definitive sanctification. And this is something that people don't talk about too much. The other form of sanctification that people do talk about a lot is progressive sanctification. We get more and more holy as we get older and older in the Lord. Our holiness goes up. Now, sometimes it goes down, too. You know, It's not a it's not continuous victory all the way up the slope, but our holiness goes up and down. But the upper trend line is always up if you think of a stock market map. you know, You see the ups and downs, but the ups and downs are climbing up into the air. Same thing with our sanctification. We're getting more and more holy. And, of course, at the end, we'll hit the jackpot. The line will go straight vertical up to the top, and we're glorified. Perfectly sanctified, which means we're glorified. And, of course, that's the goal of the Christian life, is to get closer and closer to God, to be more and more conformed to His image, to which we were predestined before the foundation of the world to be conformed to, as Ephesians says. We go now into Romans 6, verses 20-21. through For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from allegiance to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death sanctification leads to life. Being a slave to righteousness leads to life, eternal life, as we'll see in a minute. But being a slave to unrighteousness makes you a slave to death. For the end of those things is death. Now, when Paul says in verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free from allegiance to righteousness, that again shows that the binary nature of this situation. You're either a slave to righteousness or you are a slave to righteousness. You can't be both. It's like being pregnant. Either you are or you're not. Next, next, Paul in verse 21 asks an easy question. What fruit was produced then from the things that you are now ashamed of? In other words, when you were out there drunken and whoring around and all the stuff and robbing and stealing and lying and all the typical things that non-Christians do, what fruit was that? What were you producing fruit for? And Paul answers his own question, death. For the end of those things is death. You were dying, folks. You thought you were living, but you were dying. And notice now that you're a Christian, you're ashamed of all those things that you used to enjoy so much. Remember what Adrian Rogers said, the sinner lapses into sin and loathes it. Because he's ashamed of what he used to do, and then when he does it again, after he gets saved, he's still ashamed of it and his lapses. But the the sinner leaps into sin and loves it. So we have a total change of mind, and change of heart, and change of attitude towards sin. We We're terribly ashamed of what we used to do. I know one of the things I used to have trouble with being so ashamed of what I did in the past, especially in my youth, that it would come back and condemn me and I'd have a picture of it. And I had to pray for the Holy Spirit. Get me free from this. I don't want to think about the things I used to do. Don't want to think about it. Got to get rid of that condemnation because Jesus got rid of it objectively. I need to get rid of it subjectively. So Paul says the end of the fruit of the end of the product of all those things that were done when you were a slave to sin is death, which is another way of saying that the wages of sin is death, which he's going to say two verses later in verse twenty three. We go to verse twenty two, but now since you have been liberated now that you're a Christian, Paul means, since you have been liberated from sin and become enslaved to God, there's the two slave analogy again. You're free, you used to be a slave to sin and now you're liberated, you're emancipated, you're free, now you go to another master, you're enslaved to God, and have your fruit, again, the fruit for sin was death, he said in the previous verse, now the fruit for being enslaved to God is sanctification, holiness, and the ultimate fruit, the end, is eternal life, so being enslaved to God means being enslaved to righteousness, which means being sanctified or being made holy, and the end of that that process is eternal life, we'll live forever with God, and it ain't ever going to stop. So again, keep in mind the, the contrast that Paul is doing here. Enslaved to sin, death, the fruit is death. Enslaved to righteousness, the fruit is eternal life. He uses the phrase here in this verse, enslaved to God. That's the same thing as he's saying you're he's, enslaved to righteousness. And then we go to that famous verse, Romans 6:23: For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there's the contrast again, death, life, death, life. Unrighteousness leads to death. Righteousness leads to life in Christ Jesus. Now notice another contrast that's not often so much in this verse. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. There's a contrast there. What's the difference between a wage and a gift? A wage is something you work for and is owed to you. So when you are working for death, you are paying with your sins, and you're working for it, and you deserve to get paid for for, for the work you did. For the sin you did, you deserve to get paid for it, which which is death. But on the other hand, you can't go to God and say, I'm going to do an act of righteousness for you, and I'm going to work for my salvation. No, it's the gift of God that gives you eternal life in Christ Jesus. There's a contrast between wages and gifts. Our righteousness is a gift. Our death is a wage that we work for. And we can do that. We can do sin. We're real good at that. We're not good at getting out of sin. That's going to, take, that's going to have to be a gift from God. Romans 4.4 4 says this, Now to the one who works, pay is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. So yeah, we're working for sin, and we're working for death. And we're paying for it with our sins, and death is saying, Yeah, I'm going to give, I'm going to give you what you deserve, death. You're going to die. Notice that but in the middle of Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, there's your contrast. That's an absolute contrast in this case. Wages is death, gift is life, but the gift is life. It's contrast. Now, why would Paul conclude a section on sanctification with a reminder that salvation is free? Because it is real easy to take Romans 6 out of context and erroneously conclude that eternal life is earned by obedience. I've already warned about it once going through this passage. Remember, salvation or justification is the root and sanctification is the fruit. We've got to keep that in mind all the time. Paul keeps talking about being a slave to righteousness, it would be real easy to think he means I gotta go out and do good. I gotta be a good boy scout, I gotta help little old ladies across the street. No, it's not that's not the way it is. Justification is the root of our salvation. Sanctification is the fruit of our salvation. Sanctification is a result of eternal life. It's not a means to eternal life. Ladies and gentlemen, with those weighty words, we will finish we have finished Romans six, and we will and our prepare we we are now prepared to go to Romans 7 in our next audio Romans 6 dealt with our release from slavery to sin Romans 7 is going to deal with our release from slavery to the law and then at the end of Romans 7 we're going to talk about the relationship of the sin and law which we've already kind of mentioned in Romans 6 but that's the general outline of what we're going to be doing next time Romans 7 is a controversial chapter for various reasons so it ought to be interesting hope you stay tuned for that hope you enjoyed this audio